Our scripture reading this morning comes from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Listen now for the word of God. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. To begin, I have a confession to make. I am not very good at Advent. I didn't even realize this was a thing until my second year of seminary when my friend and roommate, Kristen, pointed it out to me. I had just returned from family Thanksgiving before most of my classmates, and on a whim, I decided to use the empty campus and the free time to make ready for the season. As we hunkered down for a couple more weeks of classes and final exams, what could be better than a little Christmas cheer? So I went to Walgreens. I was a student. I bought a basket full of the most tasteful decorations I could find, brought them back to my shared apartment, and got to work, stringing lights and garland up on the walls, carefully placing candy canes on the little aluminum tree that I stuck in the corner, setting up the crash in a prominent location atop the TV stand. Perhaps it will not surprise you that when Kristen arrived home hauling a suitcase and travel weary, she did not appreciate my thoughtful work. Visibly drawing a deep breath and applying the filter, she inquired, what happened here? I decorated our apartment for Christmas, I said. Oh, I can see that, she replied. So trying to catch up and figure out what it is I was missing, what the source of this prickliness was, I started explaining that I had left most of the tree undecorated so that we could do that together, and that if she preferred green garland to red, I also had that. There were any number of things that we could do differently here, so this was a space that we would both be comfortable in. And putting her hand up like so, she stopped me mid-sentence. Sarah, it is not Christmas yet. 
it is Advent. It turns out that in my friend's family of origin, they observed a holy Advent. A single Advent wreath that sat in the middle of the dining room table. The tree not put up until Christmas Eve. No Christmas music in the house. Advent. They waited. So I told her I admired her piety and her strict adherence to the liturgical calendar, but that in the spirit of truth-telling, which she had started, I honestly found it just a little bit depressing. Nevertheless, we compromised that year by taking the baby Jesus out of the manger and hiding him. We were, after all, still waiting for his arrival. And the next year, we did it her way. And since then, I have spent a good deal of time wondering about and thinking about Advent and Christmas and the distinction between them and where we can find a happy middle place. I would venture to say that for most of us, the four-ish weeks leading up to Christmas are full of things the wider culture would recognize. For some, it's full of tradition, baking Christmas cookies with the so-and-sos and decorating gingerbread houses with the so-and-sos attending the Nutcracker Remix or Handel's Messiah, caroling, volunteering at the Salvation Army, watching movies that you've memorized every line to. For some, these weeks are full of frenzy and shopping and list-making, lists of gifts, lists of people to send the family Christmas card to, lists of groceries, for some, these weeks can be stressful. For some, these weeks are full not of tradition or the stress of hosting or gifting, but full with a heaviness. They're full of grief with memories that flood the eyes and lodge in the throat at inconvenient times with guilt for not rising to the expectation of the season. For many of us, these weeks are pregnant with longing for an idealized past and with lots of energy that tries to recreate that past. Sometimes it manifests in maintaining a cheery disposition no matter what, Sometimes in hyper-organization and productivity and hosting magic. Sometimes in making sure that every tradition is enacted, that nothing is missed. And it makes me curious. It's easy to dismiss or even to scold the person who can barely wait for the Thanksgiving mess to be cleaned up so that she can put up her Christmas tree. But it's harder to scratch beneath the surface and discover the yearning below. If we are trying so hard to resurrect a taste of something that we hopefully had as children, 
What is that something? What's behind the seductive and selective memory? Is it the last time we truly felt safe? Or the last time we got lost in the wonder of it all? Is it the last time we actually believed in something really big and unreasonable? In the days to come, says Isaiah, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be raised above the hills. This image is similar to the one described by the prophet Micah, which leads biblical scholars to posit that the image was an oracle belonging to a prophetic tradition that both prophets, if not more, drew upon. The community was familiar with this image, this vision of cosmic salvation in which the future belongs to God, and we have the assurance of that no matter what is happening in the present. What I find most compelling and most challenging about this scripture is the middle of it, which one could argue is the crux of the passage. The prophet says that in those days, those days to come when the mountain of God is clearly the highest, rising above all the other hills, all those other claimants to power, in those days the people will stream to it. They'll call to each other saying, come on, let's go to the house of God, that God might teach us and that we might walk in God's paths. The emphasis is on the eagerness to learn. It's on the community's willingness, even joyful willingness, to be instructed, to surrender together to God's direction. Those will be the days, the prophet says, when the people encourage each other, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And then just look. Look what happens. God is judge, hearing the grievances of the nations and arbitrating between them. Weapons of war are transformed into tools that feed and provide, and all manner of things are well. But the hope named in that vision is not only the hope of a God-enacted, everlasting day of peace, but the hope of a humanity compelled by God, compelled enough to stream up that mountain. Hope, the theme of this first Sunday in Advent. It's a concept that carries some baggage. A handful of social justice activists say it often substitutes for action. It's an opiate, they say, much like optimism and the naive and shallow belief that in the end everything will be okay. And still others say, no, hope is the only thing that fuels the fire. If you don't have hope, if you don't have some compelling vision of collective salvation, then you simply can't work for the common good 
with any kind of staying power. The despair will eventually get you. The masses of students and pro-democracy folks who have been protesting in Hong Kong over the last weeks and months uniquely marry those seemingly opposite positions in our present day. Their movement has received attention recently, not just because of its relevance to China and our relationship to that country, but also because of the protesters' grit and their frank admittance that they aren't primarily driven by hope. They are not marching and demanding and in some cases rioting because they hope, realistically, for a democratic future that they will experience soon. They fight, they say, because there is no other choice. If they have hope, it is hope for a someday, but not for tomorrow. There is a sense in which all of our deepest hopes escape the narrow confines of what's possible now. The people in Isaiah's time were well acquainted with adjusting their expectations to meet the present reality, but they also never lost sight of that higher vision, and some of them even trusted it. In my hometown of Kalamazoo, Michigan, a big controversy has erupted in the last week. In the center of downtown is a park, Bronson Park. And Bronson Park has long been home to what we affectionately call Candy Cane Lane, which goes up a few days before Thanksgiving and stays up through the season until New Year's Day. Along the path that leads to the center of the park from the southeast corner, these giant candy canes, all 20-something of them, line the sidewalk on either side. Set at an angle and leaning towards each other, they form this sort of canopy like this over you as you walk underneath them. Just about every Kalamazooan I know has a story that includes Candy Cane Lane. Well, this year, the city of Kalamazoo decided to do away with the decades-old candy canes, and they put up new ones. The reaction has been swift and not sparing of the city council members. These candy canes are ugly. They're bright. They're sterile. They stand up straight instead of at that angle. They are a hideous shade of red. They are nothing like our old, beloved candy canes, which were pastel and warm and inviting and romantic and perfect. As of 7.46 this morning, 9,693 signatures have been collected on a petition to bring the old candy canes back to Bronson Park. The reaction has been swift. And as you can imagine, so has the reaction to the reaction. Bronson Park has been and continues to be the epicenter of all sorts of higher stakes issues. 
It's where the city's homeless camped out in the cold when the main shelter expelled them last year and no one stepped up to the plate. It's where the anti-war movement staged protests in the lead up to the invasion of Iraq. It's where the community gathered together for a candlelight vigil in February 2016 after a gunman went on a random shooting spree that left six people dead and two seriously injured. It's where the churches that surround the park gather on Monday, Thursday to break bread together. To the people who flocked to Bronson Park for reasons other than Candy Cane Lane, their frustration is palpable. Where is this emotional energy about things that matter? Why can't we rally like this when it comes to things like housing and war and peace and gun violence and marking the last meal that Jesus had with his disciples? My hunch is that there is more overlap here than immediately meets the eye. That the energy fueling the grief over changed candy canes comes from territory similar to the energy fueling the grief over mixed up priorities. We are a people who long for hope, for peace, for joy and for love, for a world healed. And we crave signs of it. We crave feeling even a measure of it, whether it's in walking under Candy Cane Lane, just as we did as kids, or standing shoulder to shoulder with people who care about our neighbors who are unsheltered. It is fitting that the lectionary assigns us this passage in Isaiah for the first Sunday of Advent, this day of hope. Because in Advent, we place our hope in the word made flesh, the word that came and is coming into our world. Like the prophet who envisioned a day when the people would stream to God's mountain to learn, compelled by something. In Advent, we place our hope not in lofty ideals or ideas or any combination of ologies, but we place our hope in a person to whose side the people streamed, compelled by something, by whose instructions people lived, compelled by something in whose paths people walked because they were compelled by something. Advent hope encompasses the vision of a healed and freed world, but it emphasizes the here and now. It emphasizes the incarnation of our God. Advent hope is less about hope for the last days and more about hope for those days just over the horizon when we will welcome yet again the entrance of the Christ child and the birth of something new and radical, God in the flesh coming alongside us, showing us the way challenging us with the expectation that we have a part to play in all of this. 
This year, our Advent theme is What Can't Wait. And so in a season that is marked by the virtue of waiting, our theme challenges us to live in that tension. Wait for the Lord, but don't just wait. Wait to sing joy to the world so that your joy is most genuine when you do. But don't wait to learn God's ways. Wait so that you notice your longing. But don't wait to walk along God's paths. Wait that you might remember your utter dependence on God. But don't wait to walk in the light of the Lord. Because hope can't wait. Peace can't wait. Joy can't wait. Love, friends, cannot wait. What does sit waiting for us today is the table for us, a people who can't wait, who shouldn't wait for those things. So come, let us go there together to listen, to learn, to walk in the light of the Lord this Advent season. Alleluia. Amen.